0: Education is a good thing, and I'm glad that I was here early enough to be educated, because I would have gone for, I don't know, years and years thinking that they spent millions of dollars with all those special effects, and now it can be done in a matter of seconds. Now I know. So just for that purpose alone, I'm glad that I ventured up here to Santa Clarita, but of course. I'm glad to come and have the opportunity to open the word to you, to share a scripture that um, at one point in time I preached in our church in a series of messages. As we were planning this church, I wanted to really communicate why we're in fact doing this. What is our purpose behind it? To try to motivate the people in our church to really get a vision for what God would want to do to try to grasp the potential that we have in our community, realizing that if there was going to be some change in the Inglewood area, in L.A. as a whole, really, that we have to grasp what it is God wants us to do. We have to live differently, that we might impact others around us. And it's very interesting because the makeup in our church body, there are a number of people that have come from some bad experiences in local churches. And they came seeking for a church that would be biblically oriented. Not just say that they were, but would use the scripture as its authority. That would teach from the scripture expository. But one interesting thing about some of those persons is, although that was their desire, at times they still had a little kind of lethargic attitude about things. Almost in a sense, some had said, well, I've kind of of found a respite here. I don't have all the problems that I had in these other churches, and I can sort of relax because things are being done for me. But that is never God's intention. He's always asking us to offer up sacrifices to Himself. He's always asking us to strive a little bit harder toward that goal, that ultimate goal that we have. So I spent some weeks looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and you can turn there, in verses 4 through 12. And I just want to touch on some of the things that I shared with them, and hopefully you'll be challenged as well. You know, the main reason behind me planting a church in Inglewood was to bring in that community an example for a local church. And of course, a local church made up of people, and those people would be an example to those around them for my time at the, the Master Seminary. I was there for four years and during that time I was also on staff at Grace Church's ministering to single adults. And at the end of that um, 1993 as I was preparing to graduate I thought what am I going to do now? Should I stay here at Grace for several more years or should I move on? I began to think what would God have me to do? And I knew eventually I would be a senior pastor. That was my heart and I thought perhaps I would uh, Just candidate different churches that were already established and perhaps go in and and try to change things from the ground up. But I thought, no, perhaps it would be better just to start from the ground up, to start all over again. And we did that. We started with the Bible study initially in our apartment in Culver City, and that grew. And eventually we moved to Sunday worship, and we've been doing that now for about a year and a half. And we've seen some great things happen, and we look forward to others happening in, in the future. But I wanted to continue to remind our people, and I will do it, that we should never be relaxed. We should always be striving for something better. We should not be so concerned about what others are not doing, but what are we doing. Because that is a tendency as well. Because in our church... We at times can be critical of other churches that are not doing things right or things biblically. We can be critical of other ministries. But then I put it before them, what about your own personal life? Where do you stand? Before you critique anyone else, before you're critical of another ministry, another individual, have you critiqued yourself as well? Are you critical of your own personal walk with the Lord? And I see in this passage a definite challenge to do just that. To ask ourselves, why are we here? What are we striving for? Are we really being different from those around us? And Peter lays it out, I think, beautifully here. And I want us to start at verse 5. And in verse 5 in First Peter 2, he says, You also as living stones are being built up, As a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And just that first thought, I mean, the challenge for us all, are we really offering up sacrifices that are acceptable to God? What we give Him, is it really our best? Are we really sacrificing? In our efforts, are we really sacrificing our personal goals? What are we giving up? And I want us to take note. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read a couple of passages from the book of Malachi with this thought about making personal sacrifices and offering up to God things that are acceptable. In Malachi chapter 1, and verse 6, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised thy name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with it? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. What was happening in Malachi's time is that there was a great deal of corruption. And as sacrifices were being offered to the Lord, we see obviously they were not giving God his best because there were some very specifics about what God would accept as a sacrifice. They most definitely could not be lame. They could not be sick. They couldn't have been blind because God was saying, I want those that are perfect, the best from your stock. But they were getting by with these blemished sacrifices. And we might take that and use it as an illustration in our own lives. What are we really offering the Lord in our efforts? Are we offering him sacrifices that are blemished, things that are lame? Is it second best, if that much? Is it once we've given our best to other things in life, then we give God what's left over in our thoughts? Even in some very basic things, in our time with the Lord, what are we offering to him? We do all the other things we have to in our given day, and finally, perhaps, 1030 rolls around, if that. And okay, I have about 10 minutes to spend some time with the Lord. Let's get it in now because I do want to say that I've spent my time with him. But is that really acceptable to him? But notice another thing that we, I saw in Malachi was this, in chapter 2. And in verse 13 it says, And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, or with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it, favor from your hand. But you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Another thing that was happening in Malachi's time, the priests themselves and the other people around were divorcing their wives. And that's why the scripture says you have dealt with the wife of your youth treacherously. Because in a sense, you've determined now She's not what's best for me. Just like we see in today's ads. All you need to do is look in the LA Times. People getting divorces, irreconcilable differences, whatever the reasons may be, but all, most of them are illegitimate. And the same thing was happening here. And God is saying, this is unacceptable because there is not a life that really corresponds with this sacrifice. Now, how might we apply that today? Because there may be a number of people within the church itself. And you may have a ministry. You can be doing things in the church. You could be giving your time. You could be making other sacrifices, legitimate sacrifices. But if it does not correspond with right living, the sacrifices are unacceptable. Because there may be a number of people even in my church and some that I've approached before You can be very busy in the church. You can do a number of things in the church. But God is first concerned about a lifestyle that really precedes those deeds. So we have to ask ourselves, when I'm offering a sacrifice to God, and God has called me to offer up these spiritual sacrifices, it begins with my lifestyle. Because I know a number of people that will use the things that they do in the church sort of to appease their conscience. Wait a minute, you can't say that about me. You can't challenge me that way. You can't criticize me. And they'll give you a list of all the things that they do in the church. Well, I'm in Sunday school. I'm there for both services. I teach in Sunday school. I'm there for outreach. I help out when people need me. I even invite people over for dinner. Those are all well things but if there's really not a heart behind it, if there's really not a, an intimate desire with your God, then you offer up those sacrifices that way. God is saying that they're unacceptable to him. Unacceptable. But if we look back at 1 Peter again, and what Peter is communicating as well, he says it very plainly. You're to offer up these spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. But I want us to jump down to verses 9 and 10. And it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's very clear that Peter's telling us now we are God's special people. In the past, we really had no real place to go. We really had nothing in life. Though we may have had some of the things in life, but no real substance to it. And my life is really a testimony of that. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and there... um, I aspired to eventually, perhaps one day, go into the NFL. So I thought, well, that would be a good thing to do. A lot of money to be made, and I could invest it wisely. Perhaps retire when I'm about 32 and spend the rest of my time on the lake fishing, right? I had a plan. But a part of that plan as well, I had enough common sense to realize not everyone makes it. So I knew I need to have an education as well. So I thought, well, Develop your your skills in football. People are telling you that you, you do it well. Have someone pay for your education. Go on to the NFL, perhaps, and if even not that, I had a third plan. My father was a military man, and I thought perhaps I could follow in his footsteps. So I had A, B, and C. I had it all covered. I was involved in junior ROTC in high school, and I was doing well in that, and I excelled in it. So I thought in college I would do the same, and once I graduated, I would be commissioned. And I had several options with me, in front of me. So I followed that plan. I trained hard. I excelled in in playing football. My senior year, I was named an All-American as a linebacker in my high school. I began to go through the selection process as to where I might attend college. And I was going to attend the University of Florida and be a Gator. But lo and behold, one day I'm on campus, and a fellow shows up, and he said, I'm from the University of Cincinnati. I said, the University of what? Cincinnati. I know there's a program, I think WKRP in Cincinnati. That was a sick that was a sitcom some years ago. I said, I'd never heard of anything else. I know there's a Cincinnati Reds. Okay, I've heard of that. So I said, Oh sure, okay, I'll go and visit your school because, you know, when they were recruiting you, they treated you like a king. You would go, they put you up in a fancy hotel, they gave you whatever you wanted to eat, show you a fun time. You know, you flew there, it was a place I'd never been before. I'll go. I'll eat their food, I'll sleep in their bed, and I'll say at the end of it, well, you know, I was really thinking seriously about it, but I don't think I'll come. So I had my plan, right? A free trip, no problem. So I got there, and I began to reconsider some other things, and I thought, well, let's concentrate a little bit less on football and more academics. What do you want to study? So I started out with a major in economics, and that would be a good way to work out my finances once I went to the NFL, right? I could do it myself. See, I was thinking, hey, you wonder, this guy's 18 thinking this way, right? But I was. So I thought, I'll come here. Their program is better than University of Florida. May not be as good in football, but if I'm going to excel, I'll excel anyway, even there. So let's go for it. So I went back and told the folks at the University of Florida I wouldn't be coming there. They were surprised. and said, they don't deserve you. You shouldn't go there. It's a waste of talent. I thought, well, I'm going to go anyway. Everyone was surprised. The dynamic do had been split up because I played in college with um, Tim Newton. His brother, Nate Newton, now plays for um, the Dallas Cowboys, and Tim used to play for the Vikings. And we were linebackers side by side. He was six, 76, I was 77. And when we went to Florida, he was going to be 56, and I was going to be 57. We had it all planned.
1: But I told him,
0: no, I can't go. I don't know why it is. I'm going to go to the University of Cincinnati. And I went there. And... My background is thinking I was, in fact, saved, and I thought, well, this is a a good place for me to go. It's not as many temptations as it might be in Florida, and I've enrolled in ROTC, was involved in that, was studying economics. And God began to change things, because he's saying, you right now don't have true substance in life. And I remember one day, I'll never forget it. I was driving on campus, had my new car. And I remember to the left of me, I was looking over at the huge intermural fields on our campus, and I thought, God, there must be something else to life. Because I had all of these things in front of me. You know, I'm a popular person on campus, playing football, studying, involved in ROTC, and I thought, something is missing. What is it? And about a week later, I was in the locker room preparing for practice, and I'm putting on my pads And a fellow comes in and he has a Bible. And I said, so are you a Christian? And he said, yes, I am. I said, well, I am too. And he said, oh, great. Well, we have a a Bible class that you're welcome to come to, which was AIA, Athletes in Action. So I began to attend that. And I had a lot of answers to a lot of things. And I could answer even with some scripture. But then I began to look at my lifestyle and my goals in life and what I thought was real substance in life. And I began to question there in my Christianity. And God was doing other things in my life as well. He began to close certain doors in my life. With ROTC, the commander approached me and said, well, Hargrove, we think you have a lot of potential. What we'd like to do for you is um, if you make a commitment to us, we want to give you a full military scholarship. Now, we know you already have your football scholarship, so this will just be money in your pocket. So I'm looking at about, you know, $12,000 a year. If you're 19 years old, that sounds pretty good, right? And you don't have to do anything to deserve it. So sure, I'll do it. And I thought, well, I went in to have my physical, and they said they wanted me to have my physical, and they'd send some papers to Washington, and I'd get this scholarship that had already been awarded in my freshman year, um, a Excellence in Military Leadership Award, and I thought, you have a lot of potential, Hargrove. So as I went to get my examination, they determined that I could not be a part of the military. And why? Well, this goes back some years before. When I was 15, I collapsed out on the football field, and there was no reason for it as I was practicing, and I began to suffer from epilepsy. So I had to take medication. I took Dilanthin for some years to control it. And they said, well, there are people in the military now that suffer from from epilepsy, and they're on this Dilanthin, but we've decided starting this date that we're not going to allow that anymore unless you've been off the medication for five years and I thought wait wait a minute this isn't a part of the plan you're wrong so I went back to the commander he said well we're going to fight for this we don't think it's right so for about a year they sent papers and recommendations and pictures and I wrote letters and it went to a board in Washington and finally they said no and it had to drop out and I said Lord what are you doing this is a commendable thing here This is something that's right. I want to serve my country. Not really. I wanted to serve myself. So I had to drop out of that. But I thought, okay, that's one plan. I have plan B and C. No problem. But then here it was, my coming into my senior year with football. The coach brought me into the office and said, "Well, have a good senior year. I'm I'm sure you'll go in the draft." I said, "I'm planning on it." And the first, before our first game, my senior year. We're in practice, and we're scrimmaging the fourth and fifth string guys, right? And I go to make a tackle, something I've done literally thousands of times before. I plant my right knee, and all of a sudden, it doesn't move anymore, and I collapse to the ground. And I'm in pain, and I'm grasping my knee, and they take me over to the side, and the doctor comes over, and he's moving it around like a rubber band. And I'll never forget this. and said, I think we have a problem. And I said, you went to school for eight years to be able to do that? I know we have a problem. The question is, what type of problem? So they gave me some Tylenol. They wrapped, they put me in a brace. They told me to go back to the dorm room. Actually, they wheeled me back. The next morning, I went in for an operation. Four and a half hours later, they repaired the major ligaments in my knee. So that was plan B. Boy, God, what are you doing here? See, those things I thought gave me substance in life and purpose in life, but they really did not. And God was taking them away to say, no, this is not a true goal for your life. This is not what you should be striving for. But there was plan C. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to graduate. I've been doing well in that, and I'll excel in that. No problem. But then at the end of the year, I began to change in my desires toward that. I began to question my motives. And I began to work with a fellow from Campus Crusade and he really began to challenge me. Carl, you say you're a Christian, but look at all these things that you've been using to try to fill that void that's in your life. Why didn't you question some of the goals that you have? And I remember one day going back to my dorm room and I really began to question that. And one day I fell on my knees in my dorm room and truly was born again. But God had to take me through some things in life to say this is really not what gives substance to life. This is really not what gives purpose to life. Why are you striving after those things? And he took all of that away. But then he replaced it with something else, obviously a true relationship with himself and then a desire for ministry as well. And eventually he would lead me into the ministry. God, in that moment, Because in eternity past, I was a part of that chosen race. And then in that dorm room, I became in time that chosen person by God. And it's what Peter says here, Now that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I was not necessarily living some vile lifestyle, but yet I was still in darkness because I thought all these things I was striving for really was going to give me guidance in life, really going to give me purpose in life. But I was still darkened by my own selfish desires. And then he says in verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, there were some things in my life that were definitely contrary to what God would want. And I began to look back on some of them. And I remember my days in, in a fraternity that I was a part of. And there remember even some pictures that I have that some years ago, I even threw them away. I didn't even want to see them anymore from some of the settings that we were in. And I appreciate all the more the mercy of God in my life. That God, despite my selfishness, despite my inconsistencies, God showed me mercy And I should appreciate that by then what? Reflecting it in my life. By now offering to God spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him. By saying, God, I appreciate you changing my life and really showing me what gives substance in life. Now I'm going to reflect that appreciation by giving back to you. But another thing I want you to note: look at verses 11 and 12. Here he then makes this appeal for personal sanctification. Really what he's saying, in light of all of these things, you are now a people of God, you're a chosen race, you've received mercy. Now he makes this appeal for personal sanctification. And he says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's interesting about the way Peter states it, he says, I urge you. He doesn't command them here. It's more this personal kind of really coming alongside or encourage you. I come alongside you to encourage you to abstain from certain things and to live a certain way. But the first thing we should know, he he refers to him as beloved. Even now, although I know fewer of you, I would encourage you as beloved to say no to the world and yes to God. I would encourage you to say that to your friends that are, your beloved friends, to say no to the world and to say yes to God. To live differently. To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Peter does it out of a love for their lives because he realizes that this gives true purpose. This gives true substance to life. So he urges them. But he says it's to live as aliens and strangers. You are growing up, and I suppose... Just about everyone does growing up. You love to watch some type of weird movie. And I grew up on, I think, what was it? Um, my Favorite Martian, um, Lost in Space. Some of you may not remember any of those. Uh, when you see it, you're like, what in the world is that, right? But these are things we grew up on. They were about aliens. And these aliens that were coming to the planet Earth and gonna take over, right? Well, my favorite Martian wasn't that. He was a pretty nice guy, actually. But I remember watching programs like that about aliens and strangers, and you're always fascinated with it. And we actually saw a display of one great alien here earlier, right? And it's very easy to duplicate, actually. But about aliens. And Peter says this live as an alien. And this word alien is really, it refers to persons being in a foreign country where they have no rights as citizens. So when we think about our rights, the only rights we should consider is the right and the privilege to serve God. We are here in a sense in a foreign country. We should not make all our investments here. We're simply passing through. We're just pilgrims here for a period of time. And then he says, as strangers. And this really communicates now we're people living alongside others that we don't really have a relationship with. And that means those in the world. We're here, but there is no kinship with them. So our goal should be to continue to live differently than them. What we should do is really take pride in being an alien. We should take pride in people looking at us and saying, you're different. And perhaps even being critical of us. And perhaps even calling us a fanatic. And when someone says to you, why are you so different? Well, say to them, well, I'm an alien. See what they'll say after that, huh? Well, I knew you were. It confirms it now. No, I'm a different type of alien. I'm here only for a period of time. I'm passing through is what we should communicate by our lifestyle. And then he says, as an alien, to do what? To abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. See, there's a battle that's going on. And even as I think about in some of our military days, or not really military, I suppose it was pre-military, when at the University of Cincinnati, it's um, very close to the Ohio River, which obviously divides Ohio and Kentucky. And there were times at ROTC, we would cross the river and we were going to Lexington, or we were going to Frankfort, Kentucky, and we were going to the hills on drills. And we wouldn't take live ammo, we would take blanks, but we would actually take the um, the weapons, the actual weapons we have. You know, I remember having an M16, and even some guys would have an M60 with them, which is a huge um, automatic machine gun. And we would be packed out and you would go in and we'd go on reconnaissance, reconnaissance missions and pretending as if we were in an actual battle situation. And what we would do is, <clears throat> There would be a school across the river, a University of Lexington, and we would have war drills with them, who could defeat the other. And we would have to come up with a strategy. And you would spend a weekend in the hills of Kentucky, in a sense, with this mock battle, strategizing against the other. And from that, I learned some very practical things about strategy itself and how do you re- make going a reconnaissance mission? How do you, in a sense, defeat your enemy? How do you locate its weak points? How do you exploit those weak points? How do you assess your own capabilities against your opponent? And so, with the enemy against us, he assesses us. And he attacks us in our weak points. And he's waging war against our soul because he wants us not to live as aliens and strangers. He wants us to be comfortable. He wants us to be like the world. He wants us to mix in. He doesn't want any distinction between us and the world. So that's why he wages war against us. But we have to wage back. And we wage back simply by striving after holiness. We wage back simply by striving and seeking after God's face. By abstaining from these lusts. In this word, abstain, to hold back continually. Continually. That's a part of it, is that we have to realize that this battle is one that is ongoing. We can never let our guard down. We have to realize that this is a continual battle. I have to hold back continually from these desires. But it's not enough simply to hold back, so we have to strive for something. That's why Paul said to Timothy to abstain from these things, but to strive after other things. Because if we don't, sometimes temptation comes like an individual knocking on the door. And we may hear it knock, and we realize that knock, we've learned to hear it properly, and we say no to it, and we say no to it. But it's not going to go away. Perhaps it'll lit up for a while, but then it comes back again. And you know what, what we have to essentially do, if you will, by sake of illustration, is to put ourselves in another part of our home. Because if we linger around that front door too often, eventually by just sake of, boy, let me just open the door to get rid of this sound. And we open that door and we've given in. But what we have to strive to do is to remove ourselves as much as possible from that knock. And the only way we can do it, yes, we abstain, But the best way to abstain is to replace it with something else. That knock will not go away. And some of us have different knocks, don't we? Some of us have a different sound to our doorbell, if you will. As those lusts are knocking, wanting us to give in. Wanting us to open that door. And we have to realize that. And we have to remove ourselves as far as possible from those knocks. But another thing that's important, in verse 12, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that as they slander you, you, in a sense, can confront them by your lifestyle. They won't have a legitimate reason for slandering you. So he says, you're beloved, you're aliens and strangers, you're involved in a warfare, but also you're observed by other people. So another motivation for us to live as aliens and strangers is to realize others are observing us. Others are watching us. What impact will my decisions have on other people? You know, one popular thing nowadays on television are some of the programs such as 2020 or Dateline or Primetime or or shows like that. And it seems like some of the ones that are most popular is when they have their hidden cams. Have you ever seen one of those? And they go out somewhere and they're gonna, they interview people and they say, no, we never done that before. And they have them on the cam and they come back and they show them their testimony and it catches people obviously, right? But I would ask you this. What if, whether it be 2020 or Dateline or prime time, decided this evening we have a special program. We've decided to venture into several Christian colleges and see what they really believe. And see if what they preach and what they believe is consistent with their behavior. And we're taking our special prime time hidden camera with us. You'll be interested to hear the results. We'll be back in a moment. And they come to the Masters College. And of course, they plant either students here, and they plant these supposed visitors here. And these people are coming to your dorm rooms, and they're discussing things with you. And they're discussing with you, how do you maintain your relationship with God? And maybe they ask you, now you're here at this Christian college, but why are you really here? Well, my mom said I had to come. My dad said, I really would not want to be here if I had a choice. The people around here are jerks, they're nerds, but I have to be here. Well, why are you really here? Well, I have a scholarship. No real motivation to learn these Christian things, but it's a free education. Who can beat that? Why are you here? Well, there's some nice, nice looking people here. And I'm hoping that maybe when I graduate, I can walk away with more than a degree. Well, now, there's some conditions here that you have to live a certain lifestyle. Well, that's true around campus and it's true around when you're around other people. But actually, there's some nice spots that I've ventured to that no one knows about down in the LA area, maybe up in Lancaster, but don't tell anyone about that. Now, you say you're a Christian. Tell me what that means. Well, I go to church. That's a Christian. That's what Christianity really means. Oh, I see. How do you feel about making out? Well, I feel great when I do it, right? What kind of testimonies would you give? If they surveyed you, if they had that hidden camera, what would they observe? And perhaps once they left, if they had a hidden microphone in your dorm room, if they had a camera that you never could observe, but observe you always. Would you feel confident in your testimony? Would you say, go ahead, no problem. Even right now, in this past week, if that had occurred to you, if someone for the last let's say week, 24 hours a day had a camera on your dorm room, in your apartment, at your job, what would they really observe? When everyone tuned back to Dateline, what would America see about the students at the Masters College? What thread would consistently be there. And of course you're always going to have inconsistency, even within the church. You're always going to be those that really are not a part of it. And the same was going to be true of the college atmosphere as well. But what would be the consistent pattern throughout the Masters College? And the only way you can really answer that, or perhaps I should put it this way, the way you should begin to answer it is to answer it for yourself individually. What would be the consistent thread in my life if they would do that? If they would observe my life and I didn't know it? If they asked me things and I thought it was off the record? If they asked me things and I thought this person really wasn't a Christian so I could open up to them and share some things that I wouldn't share around my Christian friends? What would people observe? That's no, a real, really, really probing question. You know, I pose it to myself. And I said, around my home, what would people observe about me and my relationship with my wife, about my study habits, about my prayer life, about my interaction with my children, about decisions I make in moral issues, ethical issues? If, in fact, for a week or so, I was being observed, no one else knew it, I didn't know it myself, What would happen in those quiet moments when no one else is around and only you in front of that television on that radio or now on the internet and the things that you could observe there and toy with? What would people know about me that I would be ashamed of? Isn't that a good question? And I think we should pose it to ourselves. What would they determine? Peter is hoping this, that they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying that as people look at your lives, you should give them reason to glorify God. You should give them reason to say, God is in fact alive. Look at this individual and how they're changed. There must be something to Christianity. There must be something to their message. Because they live so differently. And they're not intimidated By those that do not live the same way. Would we be able to say that? What would be the final conclusion for all of us? Are we going to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? Will we give reason that others might in the day of visitation glorify God? would you give reason that others when that day comes, though the excuse will not be legitimate, say, Christianity? I've known several of them, even some that were at this Christian college. They were no different than me. What would they say? Father, we thank you for the word that you give us, the challenge that is before us. And I pray that as it goes forth that we would consider... Challenge that we would um, seek to live a life as aliens and strangers, to live differently, and to not be intimidated by living differently. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. We and all stand. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to come out and share the word with you. And I would ask and covet your prayers in my ministry in the Englewood area, and we need it. And hopefully, maybe I could see some of your faces. Maybe you might visit with us at some point in time. And I'd just like to dismiss uh, dismiss us in another word of prayer. Father, we just pray. Praise you and thank you for your goodness. I pray that all the students here would consider what you said to us in your word and seek to live consistent with the testimony of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.